Welcome to the Preacher's Podcast for Proper 24 in Year A. Today we are doing a standalone Sunday, so not part of uh, the previous series or the upcoming series, but just a one Sunday uh, emphasis on godly government. Um, you can read more about this on the foundation resources on wellscongregationalservices.net, but uh, those who put the foundation resources together thought this might be a valuable and really appropriate and timely emphasis um, since we're about a year away from a national election as uh, this is being listened to. So um, let me introduce our participants for today. Uh, John Quinn from Monk's Corner, South Carolina, and Jay Zahn from Waukesha, Wisconsin. And also with us today, Professor Paul Wendland from the seminary. And I'm John Mitchell, uh, your moderator. So, John Quinn, could you tell us a little bit about Proper 24 in year A? Sure. Um, as you mentioned, you know, it's it's rather, it can be rather timely, but it's certainly everything in this proper is timely all of the time for Christians, uh, because we we live in this world and we we deal with um, or with earthly governments. And so I know we're going to talk about the other lessons later, but I think it's another one of those Sundays where they all tie together and thoughts can be brought in from them. But um, just this idea of the um, of, of the of earthly government and what to make of it. Um, and, and where does it come from? Obviously, it comes from from God. But to be able to remember that um, and to be able to preach that truth to, to God's people um, so that they can understand what's what's going on here and, and what God has to say to them about that. I think there's there's probably um, a couple of of warnings for for preachers. Uh, there's. <laughs> You know, the cliche is we're not supposed to talk about religion or politics. And here's a Sunday where you're going to talk about both and, and, and how they fit together. And so I think that there could be a danger for a preacher, um, first of all, maybe to say too much and to let one's own personal opinions or thoughts um, instead of the just what God's word says uh, come through. Um, and that wouldn't be good. Uh, but I think there could also be a temptation for the preacher to say too little um, for fear of upsetting people about a sensitive subject. And so I think the caution for preachers is um, not to say more than God says, but certainly not to say less than God says about this very important topic. And if if people are going to be upset by what we we say from the pulpit on a Sunday like this, it's OK if they're upset about what God's word actually says, because it's confronted something in their hearts and their lives that's that's not lining up with what God says. It's not okay if they're upset because the thing they're mad about is what we've decided to say that goes beyond what God says. So I think it's a great Sunday for preachers and for our listeners, certainly important and timely for all of us all the time. Yeah, excellent reminders uh, not to go too far in either direction there. Um, Jason. Could you tell us a little bit about the gospel of the day and the first reading before we get to uh, the Romans reading for our sermon text? Happy to do so. Uh, gospel is is uh, Matthew 22, and it's the, uh, I think it's very familiar when we talk about this particular topic, um, religious leaders, well, I, maybe we should start with um, church and state were more intertwined in those days than uh, 
than, than they are today, at least for Americans. Americans may understand, at least in theory, the distinction between church and state. Uh, church and state were much more um, intertwined in Jesus' days. So the the walking that fine line would have been a more difficult thing for Jesus to do, which is what the his religious opponents uh, were hoping to trip him up on, laying a trap. Um, to whom do we owe honor and allegiance? And and Jesus masterfully uses the denarius to to teach uh, paying taxes, yes, but uh, religious allegiance or, or uh, the heart's allegiance, no. And 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 so he he um, threads that needle uh, very wisely and and uh, and and with great grace. Lots to learn there. And uh, the Old Testament lesson, the first reading is from from Daniel, uh, where you've got young Jewish men serving in a foreign government that has deported them. Again, also church and state very much intermingled. Um, the, the king would have been the ultimate authority. And so to defy the king um, isn't just an act of civil uh, disobedience. It's it's seen in, in much larger terms too. And, and uh, uh, they were willing to uh, serve him as best they could with their abilities in ways that were appropriate. But when it came to uh, having to violate their their religious laws, um, dietary laws, uh, they weren't willing to do that because it was an act of uh, obedience to God first and foremost. And so they were they were willing to stick their necks on the line uh, to to ask for a special dispensation. And uh, in this particular case, they were they were allowed that. So uh, both both examples though are uh, or both stories are examples of Christians living. Uh, under earthly government, but not living uh, as uh, as though they were subjects ultimately of earthly government, understanding that there's one greater than earthly government that's in charge. Right. Thank you. Uh, Paul Wendlin, let's go to you next to our sermon text, Romans 13, 1 through 7. There's a lot that could be said about this text, of course, but what are some things that you find noteworthy that might be helpful to preachers as they're using this as a sermon text? And make check your audio there. First of all, I like to set things in their um, uh, context. And the book of Romans is a good letter to observe how Paul develops his thoughts. You'll remember that in the first eight chapters, he's been talking about God's wrath and God's justice and how he reveals those things. A wrath that is deserved by all people without exception and a righteousness or justice that is gifted in Christ to all people. Uh, then he moves on to Romans 9 to 11, where he's answering the question of how does this work, given the fact that the majority of God's chosen people, Israel, have uh, seemingly rejected the covenant in Jesus. Uh, and then he replies with his words about God's sovereign grace. Uh, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And then ending that section with a song of praise. So we're in a section right now that is really based on the previous sections. There's that mighty oon in Romans 12. I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Everything that he's saying in this entire section is based on justification by grace alone through faith. Uh, but it's also, in this particular section, an expression of the love unfeigned that he begins talking about in Romans 12, 9, and he's kind of making a sort of a love sandwich, if I can put it that way, uh, where he's talking about Romans 12, 9, this love unfeigned, 
And then he talks about let no debt out remain outstanding in Romans 13, 8 to 10, verses just following our text. Let no debt remain outstanding except the debt of love. So when we're thinking about obedience to government, I think it's based on our just. This is the response of the justified sinner. That's that's basic thought number one. Uh, basic number two is it's really an expression of our love for God and our love for neighbor uh, that finds its expression mm -hmm. in our obedience to uh, government. Um, it's also maybe has a kind of a connection to the previous chapter where he was talking about transforming minds. You know, there's that statement that uh, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, uh, where he's making it clear, no, this is something that you do in with and under your bodies. Uh, and it includes uh, physical and mental and moral obedience uh, to the government in charge. And he's just got done with a section just prior to our verse under examination uh, by urging Christians not to take revenge, uh, but to give place to orge, uh, wrath. And in the book of Romans, wrath always refers to God's end times anger upon all guilty sinners. So this could be his answer to the question, well, am I just defenseless in an evil world like this as I'm waiting for the end? And he says, no, uh, you have an agent of wrath that God has appointed to exercise, even in the here and now, his end times wrath on the evildoer. So this is all by way of background to a couple of uh, uh, remarks I'd like to make now on the text itself. And I have basically five overall uh, thought areas. The first one is, it's really breathtaking to see the absoluteness of his call to obey governmental authorities. You you mentioned that already, but it, th when you look at this, pasa psyche exousias heperecusas hypotazesto, let every soul, every individual, no matter who he is, what station in life he has, let him subject himself to the overarching authorities, to those authorities, governmental authorities, in whatever form they may come. And then his follow-up sen sentences, for there isn't a single authority, there's no article there, exousia in general, there is no authority except by God's decree is inserted there or um, expected implicit there. The ones that exist are set in order by God. So he says it positively, he says it negatively, he says it every which way we have an absolute, uh, almost an absolute there is going to be an exception we'll obviously be talking about later but the absoluteness of his call to obey the government authorities is really remarkable and it doesn't end there uh he he talks in verse two about how opposing the governmental authority is to oppose god in verse four he says that government authorities are god's uh diakonoi his agents uh, and then he says in verse 5, it's there's an ananke, a necessity that is set upon us to subject ourselves, for consciousness sake, for reasons of our consciousness of God, as those who are morally conscious that there is a God in this universe who's going to hold us accountable for our obedience or lack of same. Um, 
Maybe another uh, just rem- oh oh then the, one other thing is in verse six he talks about them with even a more remarkable word than diakonoi he talks about them as liturgoi which is uh, is a kind of a cultic term from the uh, Old Testament Septuagint it was used of priests and Levites who would work in the sphere of the temple so as we work in our sphere of the temple of life. Uh, one of the great callings of it is to serve as a governmental servant who is God's agent, uh, who is serving God in that sphere of the kingdom of God's left hand, like a Cyrus or somebody like that. He's actually God's cultic agent. Um, so I guess I would just say, what a breathtaking way of asserting the kingdom of God's left hand. Uh, We might also note that the government is talked about in an abstract sense. There's no one particular form that's endorsed in whatever form it may come. Of course, we know at Paul's time, it was Nero, who was uh, the uh, emperor at Rome at this time. Um, Which just leads me to make maybe a following remark on application, is it? Or just explicating the thought of the text. We can't overemphasize that God wants an ordered world and that there are three foundational aspects to God's ordered ordered world. The family, which he speaks about in Genesis 1 and 2. Government, which he speaks about in Genesis 9, 6 and here. And church. Without these three pillars, society itself is going to fall apart. To rebel your against whether you're rebelling against a churchly authority or a authority in the kingdom of God's left hand, you are rebelling to use Luther's words against someone who is the mask of God, behind whom whose mask God Himself is working, uh, and that's very serious business. The other side, the positive, is also there. The family is there to do us good. Government is there to do us good. The church is there to promote uh, salvation eternally. So we're cutting ourselves off from the source of life when we demean, degrade, oppose, rebel against authorities like this. This is the way God has set up to maintain order in his world. Um. The next thought that I have, thought number three, is that he also talks about the functions of government in verses three and four. He speaks about government as being an agent of God. Zoe is a dative of advantage for your good uh, to your advantage. He sort of doubles up on zoe ice to agathon. So uh, one function of government is a positive one of rewarding you when you do the right thing. Uh, he's also there to punish you when you do the wrong thing. He's an ectikos uh, ice or gain to the one who does evil. So the two functions of government are basically to promote good citizenship and to punish the evildoer. Um, that would be uh, thought number three. Thought number four would be what of our reasons for obedience. Paul spells these out in verses five and seven. First of all, fear of God's orge, which is expressed through the sword he has placed in the hand of the government. Phobos is the word that he uses, which is typically used by Paul not to talk about the fear of 
uh, being having your head snicked off by the emperor, although I'm sure that's involved, but as an emperor, of as God's agent. So this phobos theu, it's really an aspect of your fear of God, your first goddess, to talk about it in German. Um, and then the positive, if we want to put it that way, is for conscience sake, because we are conscious of God's moral will. Uh, and finally, verse 3 might add another uh, thought to this, that uh, for praise. I know we Lutherans don't like to think about uh, uh, praise as if there was something necessarily bad, but uh, th there's no reason on earth why someone can't feel a sense of joy in his justified self for having acted out of love and obedience to the government, for having paid his taxes, uh, and, and to feel that this is a song of joy that I'm singing to the praise of my maker who set things up this way. Uh, finally, the two practical applications that he makes at the end are both to the wallet and to the heart. The wallet, pay taxes to whom you owe taxes, tribute to whom you owe tribute, etc., etc. But he doesn't want this to be just an outward compliance. He makes that clear by using the words phobos and timei. You give honor. You give uh, you you give fear that is owed. Maybe there's one more remark I'd like to make, in, and that is in view of the absoluteness of this these statements here, is Paul acting as if there is no limit to government? I think here's where the hermeneutical principle of letting Scripture interpret Scripture also comes into play. Mm -hmm. Paul knew that there was only one Kyrios, and that was Christus. It wasn't Augustus, it wasn't uh, Tiberius, it wasn't Caligula, it wasn't anybody else, it wasn't Nero, it was Kyrios Christus, as he says in Philippians 2. He also is well aware of the demonic power of government, that the rulers of this age had crucified the Lord of glory. So I have no doubt that Paul would have been in perfect agreement with the apostles who said we must obey God rather than men. Um, and whenever you read Romans 13, maybe also a good thing is to read Revelation 13, where the Apostle John talks about the bestial power of government. He refers to the government of Rome as the beast out of the sea, uh, because from his perspective in Patmos, he would have seen this, this bestial power of Rome rising uh, from the sea. Uh, that there are definite limits to government and especially totalitarian governments that lay claim not just to the outward body in the form of taxes, but also to our souls and our allegiances, uh, which we've seen certainly too much of in the 20th century. And the Leviathan of government seems uh, to be certainly alive and well and living in the 21st century as well. Uh, Christians uh, do have an understanding that there is a bestial power to the government that we need to be concerned about. Uh, these are just some of my thoughts. All right. Thank you, Paul. Um, so thinking about preaching this text <clears throat> with those thoughts in mind, um, just approaching law and gospel from this text, I think uh, we've hinted at that, or John did uh, in his um, words about the theme of the week before. Um, what are some 
approaches to law and gospel in this text. John? I, we touched on, you know, the, 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 the government's authority ultimately comes from God's authority. It all comes from, from God. And so there's, there's maybe to remember that is why we, why we honor the government. So that's certainly an application that we, God wants us to, to honor the, the earthly government. And so there's a temptation against that in kind of two directions. One is that we don't want to honor the government for whatever particular reason. We don't like what's going on. We don't like who's in power. Um, we don't want to pay taxes, all those things. And so one malady would be a temptation to not show honor to the government. But on the last point that Professor Wendland made, another temptation is to want to honor the government too much in the sense that we do look to the government as the ultimate authority. And then it becomes, it really becomes idolatry. And that comes out in our lives in all different ways in, in the sense of that we think that the government has all the answers to life's big problems. And maybe we wouldn't say that as Christians, but do we act like that? Do we do we have the thought that if just the right people get elected, then this world will go so much better than it's going now or our country will? Or do we get so upset if who we consider are not the right people get elected and wring our hands? And um, so that we'd honor the government in the way that God has called us to, not less, but certainly not more, that it, it takes the place of God in our in our lives. And I think we can probably point to examples of, of what that looks like in people's lives. Okay. So failing to honor the government on the one side, giving it too much credit uh, above what is due God on the other side. Jay? Now, it, those... To me, those are kind of the outer boundaries. I wonder if, I wonder for Christians, if we if we tend to shade maybe in a little bit closer to where, uh, not in an ultimate sense where we'd see government as replacement for God, but to what degree do we allow government to uh, play a greater role in our hearts than God? And, you know, so um, we give allegiance to God on Sunday morning, but we also we're, we're also in the water of our culture, and, and elections have consequences, and and. You hear the mantras about uh, the the dangers to uh, the survival of of our form of government and and uh, uh, the the um, intensity of the messages that often get associated with campaigns. And um, to what degree do we see through that? To what degree do we actually absorb that? I think there's a there's a danger in that too, and that we end up parroting what our society is drumming into us on a, on a pretty regular basis around this subject. Mm -hmm. So being aware of those cultural influences, too. Um, yeah, what about uh, gospel themes in this text? Or where do we go for that? Um, how would you express the gospel in terms of the text <clears throat> or maybe the context? Um, maybe what Paul said gave us some ideas, considering the, the context before and after. Um, but uh, yeah, how would you do express that if you're preaching on this text, John? An idea? I really appreciated what Paul said about the uh, who the ultimate Lord is, mm -hmm. right? And so, so we'll keep we'll we'll honor government properly, not too much, too little, when we remember that it's not the final authority, 
that the final authority is actually, you know, it's not the greatest kingdom. It's not the supremest court that all of that belongs to our God and the kingdom of God. And he is, he is, and this is the beauty, the the beautiful gospel that you can say when you, when you look at this is that, you know, the king, there's a king of kings and a Lord of lords. Um, and he's our redeemer and our savior God. And he is on his throne and has begun his reign and he shall rule forever and ever. Um, and that's important to remember because remember how he rules, um, why he's the king, but it also gives us tremendous comfort no matter what happens in this world or with earthly governments or who's in power, who's in control, that ultimately there's a king, there's the judge, he does right. And, and in the end, um, his kingdom lasts forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other ideas about gospel themes, Jay? Maybe tie a law gospel thought together here the thinking the other the, the gospel and 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 the uh, first lesson as well that um i wonder to what degree as american christians we want uh government to make it easy for us to live our faith and we get um uh upset or or deeply concerned when it becomes when it feels like government's making it more difficult to live our faith uh maybe the maybe the gospel thought behind that um so uh, the law thought is that so that when gospel when the government makes it difficult, they can't po- possibly be a gift from God. But is it possible that God allows us to uh, to to face um, suffering or to to face uh, consternation because of our confession, for the sake of purifying our confession, for the sake of of being becoming clearer about who the the true Lord is uh, in our own hearts and our own minds? Is it possible that that um, where where culture is taking a darker turn it allows us to shine more brightly against the foil as the backdrop and is that is that uh, uh god's ability to to draw others uh, to the light because the light is shining more brightly against a, a darker backdrop mm-hmm. paul yeah in that connection i would just say remember that this is an expression of the transformed mind um that we understand things in terms of what christ has done for us and that he rules everything in grace and understanding that he rules everything in grace uh, means that, for me, what happens in politics is at best a provisional good. I'm not looking for the ultimate glory of the universe. And if that means that God asks me to suffer for his glory, his name is still going to be glorified and his kingdom is still going to come, uh, whether it serves in my external victory or external defeat. I still win in Christ Jesus. That's the transformed mind way of seeing things, of recognizing that the Lord loved me and gave himself for me. And that means that every good thing must come from his hand. Um, And unlike people of this world, I mean, I understand why they get so savage and savaging one another in the polarized America in which we live, because politics is all they got. That's all they got. But for us, it's at best a way of keeping order in a world that would otherwise fall into chaos as we're on the path to glory. I mean, it's a different way of looking at things. And we just look at things as strangers and pilgrims and exiles, not as people who are building here any continuing city. So, I mean, I think that's very important. Yeah. So secular government for the Christian is always operating as a gift of God, ordained by God, but always in the shadow of a greater king, a greater kingdom. Yeah, keeping that in mind. John? Yeah, what a what a tremendous point that is. Um, 
to remember. And and Paul mentioned before, you know, Cyrus being God's, you know, God's tool, or we could we could go right down the line, Pharaoh or um really anybody. in the first lesson we're gonna hear about, you know, we heard about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and and um or how about even how about even Pontius Pilate? And what does God accomplish through all this? He accomplishes his his purpose. He doesn't control them like like pawns, but essentially they're serving a purpose for a time, for a moment in time in God's grand plan. Um, and it's God's grand plan as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that he's going to work out and give us exactly what we need at what time we need it, whether that's through suffering or persecution or through good times. He, he promises that in the end, he's the father of heavenly lights who doesn't change and everything he gives us is, is good. And he works it out for our, our eternal good. And what a comfort for, for us as Christians, as we look at all the different things to just step back and remember, this is actually the world we live in. Here's the world we see with our eyes. Here's the, you know, Paul said it. I mean, the politics is religion for people because it's all they have now, but we have something more. We see, we get a glimpse behind the curtain we see realities that people can't see with their just their senses and to know that guides just how we live through this until we live forever in that eternal kingdom yeah yeah um thoughts for preachers on um yeah i guess i'll, I'll kind of open it up uh applications uh illustrations or maybe some experiences in preaching on the topic of uh government or specifically on Romans 13, if you've done that, uh, anything you can share that might help them, inform them, guide them as they look ahead to preaching on this text. Uh, Jay? I wonder, uh, in our distinction between church and state, if if maybe our tendency is to err on the side of being under underconnected to the, the good of government and um, the the opportunity to bring out uh, the the noble calling of being a statesman, and uh, the the encouragement for for people in our midst to consider the the beauty of serving uh, God and serving and loving neighbor through through uh, public office. Um, I don't know how often our people hear that. Uh, it's, it's it's very easy to get down on government, but but how often do we take the opportunity to to lift up and and highlight the the blessing be a temporary, but the blessing that the government that God intends government to be. Yeah, yeah. I remember commenting uh, once. I think it was a state representative or something uh, that I met years ago, and and uh, made a similar comment. I said, you know, as Christians, maybe we steer our kids away from uh, getting into this uh, calling. Uh, but maybe we shouldn't, you know, because politics is uh, has bad connotations. And he said, um, first of all, I. I prefer the term public service uh, to politics. Yeah, there's politics involved. I thought that was a good point. And, and I remember uh, uh, hearing another Christian who had served in government uh, make the comment, um, you know, maybe instead of steering kids away from public service or elected office, um, maybe it would be a blessing to other people in the world and God's left-hand kingdom if we steered our kids to consider that, um, to let their light shine in that way too. So I think those are good, good pieces of advice that I've remembered. Uh, further thoughts I, I, on this, applying this, uh, uh, helping our parishioners, listeners understand uh, and sort through some of these issues in light of Romans 13. 
I think connecting it to the doctrine of vocation is very helpful because uh, one's idea of one's calling in life always flows from one's sense of justification. It's what faith does once faith is convinced that it has everything in Christ Jesus. Now we pour ourselves out in love. And one aspect of that love is to pour ourselves out in governmental service, as well as pour ourselves out in family, as well as pour ourselves out in service to the church. Uh, the doctrine of vocation is coming, is shining clearly through here. And when I think of a contrast in my own head, you know, I think it's becoming more real in America. And I don't want to, I could have made this application uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But I, I remember growing up in Zambia when the government was not very strong and where if you wanted the police to come to your aid, if men with guns would come at your door, you literally had to go seven, eight miles over a dusty road to pick them up and bring them to you, by which time, of course, it would have been a waste of time. I, 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 can, I can tell you that when you're thinking of the good of government in holding back the tides of chaos, you really pray together with Paul that good Christians would see the value of Romans 13. Because living under chaos is not fun. It is scary. And we do not want that. You don't want that. This is really a high and a holy calling for someone to foster a peace among citizens in this country. This is a high and holy calling that uh, men and women that are lovely Christians are carrying out on our behalf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, talking with a member who came from South Sudan uh, a number of years ago and spent time in Juba. The, the government is all up topsy-turvy and turning over. And he said, you know, there are big parts of the city where the roads are terrible and the street lights don't work. And we think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, when people rob someone else, they just go to the part of the city with no street lights and with terrible roads and no one can do anything about it. And it, it kind of just brought home to me that a lot of these things that government does that uh, we maybe take for granted, um, boy, they're they're critical to our living in peace and some measure of security um, and really gifts of God easily taken for granted. Uh, John, what a yeah, what a powerful reminder of just how incredibly blessed we are in our country. Um, and going back to the, that mindset that Paul has been talking about. Um, the whole idea of having that Christian mindset that why why would we be looking out and harping on the one or two or even the many negatives and neglect to mention all of the positives and praising and thanking God um, for all of those things? Um, just just how we get to participate, like like Jay mentioned that we could run for office as Christians, but even just down the line from that, that we can participate, that we can be, we could be part of an active debate, that we have the privilege to vote, that we could say, if I disagree with, with um, the direction of the country, I can vote to have somebody who I would agree with. I can even talk to other citizens and say, hey, what do you think about these principles? And wouldn't this be good to advance in that way? And thinking about that made me think about how, you know, how do we deal with people who um, are politically opposed to our, our thoughts and how do we treat them? And again, it goes back to that identity in Christ. 
and that you know we're, we're people who are called to love our enemies which would would kind of speak to how i speak about people who don't think the same way that i think or approach life the same way that i approach approach life um paul hinted at it before that we need to talk about when is it okay to disobey the government when they've specifically commanded us to do something that violates god's will or specifically forbidden us from doing something that is according to god's will and be careful that we don't play fast and loose with that and try to find loopholes where we can be disobeying the government all over the place but even when we do need to disobey the government if that should come up or even when we disagree with something that a governing official does that we remember that last thing that that paul highlighted at the end of talking about this text that one thing that is owed always is honor and i think you have a wonderful example of that just after our lesson in daniel you get to you know the dietary things were accepted but then then you get to shadrach meshach and abednego just <laughs> a couple chapters later and it's bow down in worship or go in the fiery furnace and and i think that now we're i think we learned something from that we're tempted in our country we don't like a particular thing you know to address a political leader with certain four-letter epithets or things that mean that or even encouraging them to maybe enter eternal perdition or something like that people like to say those sorts of things about politicians they're opposed to here's nebuchadnezzar um who's a jerk i mean he is it's a it's a it's a terrible nation who's just come in and brutalized judah and taken all of their people away and when Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego civilly disobey the command, you look at their their speech in Nebuchadnezzar, and it's all "Your Majesty," you know, with all due respect, um, "Your Majesty." They say it over and over again, and they say they don't say "You're an idiot" or call them names or say "We're not going to." They're completely respectful and honorable in their disobedience of that, and they say because we serve a, a higher power and he might save us. And even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him more than you. So there's that, that idea of honor and how we look at people and how we speak to people because we have looked behind the curtain and see who the King is and what he's, what he's done for us and what he's done for all people. And that our, our primary purpose in life is really to serve people with, with that, with the message of that kingdom which is salvation and a savior who loves and came for and died for all people. Right. Right. Great. Any further thoughts uh, that might be helpful to preachers as they wrestle with this text and, and how to present it? Um, any ideas, if you're preaching a sermon on this text, a theme you might use uh, just to kind of help preachers sort of uh, begin crystallizing a, a central thought and, uh, and how to approach that. Any ideas? Jay? So uh, if you like alliteration, maybe this will tickle your fancy. Uh, godly people give thanks for the good of government mm -hmm. uh, and and bringing out uh, many of the things we just talked about, and, and they could be uh, uh, subsumed under different headings, but uh, the, the protection, um, uh, uh, civil peace, and then the opportunity to 
uh, that those things afford for the, the sake of being able to preach and practice the gospel um, are, are things that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other ideas? Uh, John? Even something along the lines of we are uh, Christian citizens, and it would be a chance to talk about the kingdoms that we're citizens of and how we operate as as Christians in whatever kingdom we're we're looking at or focusing on and what that what that means as we live in the left hand kingdom and mm-hmm. ultimately in, in God's eternal kingdom. Okay. Yeah. So what it means to be a Christian living at a, as a citizen, what it means to be a citizen who is also a Christian. Uh Paul? I probably would do something that is the same thought, only I, I might put it really because of the situation in which we live nowadays, I might say I love government mm-hmm. by appreciating it by obeying it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um, and that's the text right i mean it, it strongly stated uh right there in romans 13 um great well yeah as i mentioned i think this will be a very valuable sunday it brings with it uh some challenges of course and sensitivities um no doubt, uh, I think we probably we have stories about um, either not addressing politics too much or addressing it in a way that was not to the liking of some people. Uh, so God bless you preachers as you wrestle with those issues, but still a valuable section of God's word. And uh, again, very timely um, as things are kind of roiling all around us uh, in the world of public service and politics. So God bless you preachers as you work with this. Uh, any final thoughts uh, wanted to add in? If not, let's wrap it up and turn things over to preachers. God bless you as you proclaim the word of God from Romans 13. <laughs>